see if this works. Didn't work. Okay. I tried something this morning before I got here, and it kind of worked. So anyway, don't have to flip through every line on 13 slides now. All right, good morning. Revelation chapter 1, if you're not there, if you go ahead and get there, because you're going to read some verses here as we uh, get started. We'll go ahead and have a word of prayer first, and then we'll read, I'll ask you all to read verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1, and uh, pastor can start that, but let's have a word of prayer first, and then we'll just get right into that, all right? So, Father, this morning, uh, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'd help us now as we look into your word, please. Um, help us to, uh, again, just be able to, help me to be able to convey uh, the truths of this of this passage uh, here this morning uh, in a clear, concise way and help us to be able to understand your word and uh, what you're communicating here. We uh, pray, too, that you would, of course, help us to have a better appreciation for the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Pastor. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was, a, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Saying, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, what thou seest, write in the book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto the land of the sea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the patch with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars were the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest were the seven churches. 
All right, let me, I forgot to pass these out earlier. Do you want one for each of you? course, last uh, time, which was two weeks ago, we had paid attention or give, gave our attention to this vision that John sees here in chapter one of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's one of those things that no matter uh, what we say, no matter how much time we devote to it, we'll be really understating the magnificence of what John saw there, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And really, if you think about it, I mean, there's some mentions, you know, throughout the New Testament of Jesus in his glorified state, and, and numerous passages, you know, tell us that he presently, after he, you know, physically ascended back to heaven to stay there at the end of the gospel accounts and in Acts chapter 1, that he is at the right hand, uh, and there's several different ways that's worded, but one of those being the right hand of the majesty on high. And this particular passage here in Revelation chapter 1, I believe, really <laughs> exemplifies that particular statement, that he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. In fact, later on here in a couple chapters in Revelation, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see a glimpse into heaven and uh, the throne of God and just the, the brilliance and the magnificence that's involved in that, but... John is allowed to see this just, in a way, just a glimpse, but yet what a, what a glimpse, right? I mean, a, a, an overwhelming glimpse, vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified state. And John's reaction to it was what? If you remember, what, how did John respond to this when he saw this? I mean, it says that he fell at his feet as dead. I mean, this was a... Again, I don't think I have the vocabulary to try to uh, communicate the, the, just the greatness of what John was able to see here. And that is, by the way, the point being is that is who the Lord Jesus really is. When he came to this earth and you know, was born uh, as a baby and grew as a child and into a man and lived here, walked among men as a man, he was in a very... <coughs> excuse me, a very veiled state of what his, who his true identity really is. And uh, obviously, humanity would not have been able to handle his true appearance. Um, but John is able to see this, all right? And, and it's interesting, I think there's at least a couple reasons why John sees this and is told to write this. Notice it's not just that he saw this, but then as soon as this occurrence happens in verse 19, you know, after he falls down as dead before Jesus, the Lord puts his right hand upon him. It says, fear not. And he says, you know, he describes himself there again. And, uh, and then he tells John to write. And he says, write what you've seen. And then write the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, which are yet to be showed him at this point in the book of Revelation. And so, 
I think there's a couple reasons why John is, is able to see this and is told to write this. One being, of course, to give this uh, short, but this presentation of who the Lord Jesus really is. I mean, this is like, if you want to think of it this way, this is like what he probably would have looked like, if I can say it that way, in heaven before he came to this earth. I mean, this is him in his true majesty in heaven. And uh, he laid those things aside when he came to this earth, when he became a man. Uh, and he did it, obviously, for purposes. And we've, we've talked about those in many other occasions. And I think the other reason, okay, is uh, why John is, is told to write this is not just to give this this, uh, you know, communication of who Jesus really is, what he really is, and what he looks like, and I mean, just this brilliance and majesty that he has, but the fact is that one of the purposes, if you remember, stated at the very beginning of the book of Revelation here is that John was given these things to tell the Lord's servants, to show the Lord's servants the things that are going to come to pass. And uh, the fact is, the Lord's churches, we, all right, should be prepared to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And this world should be prepared because He's coming back. And that is the big focus of what the book of Revelation as a whole is about. Jesus is coming back and this is who He is. This is how He's coming back. In this, uh, you know, in, this in His brilliance, in His radiance, in His glory. He's not coming like he did the first time. He's not coming in humility. He's coming in all his majesty. And this world needs to be prepared for that. They should be prepared for that. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And I believe that's a big part of why John is not only allowed to get this glimpse of the Lord Jesus. And you think about it, no, well, at least it explicitly stated no other writer in the New Testament ever saw this kind of picture of the Lord Jesus. I mean, Paul mentions about, you know, seeing things that aren't lawful to be uttered and this, this kind of thing, and obviously we have no idea what that is, all right? But John is allowed to see this, and, and I, I think in a way that's also fitting with who John was and his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we uh, look at what we're going to look at this morning. Actually, before we get into looking at the seven letters, there's this lesson and one other lesson that I have in preparation for that. They, I don't know that we could squeeze them both in today. We'll have to see how that goes. But um, these, these are very important truths that I think that uh, I want to try to communicate here this morning and, and in the next lesson as well, but particularly here this morning. I mean, John's told to write what he saw. He's told to write, of course, the things which are, which are basically the, the issues with the churches, all right? Because John was living in the church age. We still live in the church age today. Those things are relevant for us here today. We're going to speak more about those things uh, a little later. And then John's also told to write the things which must be hereafter. Now, he hasn't been shown those as of this particular point, he hasn't been shown those things yet, but he will be shown those things beginning in chapter 4. And so as we look at this subject that we want to look at today, the Lord of Lords and his churches, all right, um, several things to keep in mind, 
as we, as we get into this. All right, number one, by God's appointment, the revelation was given for Jesus to show his servants what was about to happen. We saw that in verse one. John, upon divine direction, addresses the book of Revelation to whom? To the seven churches, which are in Asia. Now, by the way, these weren't the only seven churches that existed at that point in Asia. Now, Asia being the Roman province of Asia, which uh, you know we refer to it often as Asia Minor. It's not really the continent of Asia, China, Mongolia, think of that today, but it's more of what what is today modern Western Turkey. But um, the, uh, it's kind of a connection, if you want to say, land-wise between Europe and Asia in, in reality there. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, he's, he's uh, told to write these things, and it's addressed specifically to these seven churches. And we're going to mention more about these seven churches again in the next lesson, whether we get to that today or not. Uh, and, but this also, of course, goes beyond just these seven churches I think it applies to all New Testament churches. Uh, this indicates that the Lord's servants are these churches, all right, because it's addressed to His servants, and then beginning in verse 4, it's explicitly stated that it's written to the churches and so on. So uh, also remember that statement of blessing there in verse 3. Uh, remember how it's worded, Blessed is He that readeth, and they that hear and obey these words, right? Which seems to indicate that, you know, one person reading, multiple persons hearing, uh, it's, it's intended to be in a, the subject in the churches, in a church setting, all right? Someone presenting this before others, all right? So Jesus also then, of course, personally dictates seven letters to seven churches. We see that in chapters 2 and 3. John's vision of Jesus demonstrates, I believe, these four truths. The importance of, the relationship of, the relevance of, and the responsibility of the Lord's churches today. All right. So concerning the, Lord's church, the Lord of Lords uh, and His plan for His work in this world today, all right, there's these points we want to consider. And let me just say that I, I did not make it this past Wednesday night, but I'm assuming that you were continuing on in Lesson C you didn't, okay. Well, I was going to say some of this might be a little redundant of that particular lesson, but uh, uh, some of the things that we talk about. But first of all, consider the reality of the Lord's churches, all right? And in that, what I mean by that is certain things that we ought to consider, all right, and realize here, all right? Number one, their importance. And I don't know that this can be overstated. And in Christianity today, I think this is often extremely underestimated, but their importance, all right? Notice, again, if you particularly look at where this passage kind of begins, if you want, or the vision, I guess we would say, begins here, and I guess I should go ahead and advance slide here. Um, Notice, let me, in fact, let me ask you this question, and now that I've kind of introduced it this way, it might be more obvious what the answer I'm looking for here is, but when John hears this great voice, right, and the voice is saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, you know, I mean, I, I personally don't believe John was wondering who was speaking to him. 
I believe John full well knew who was speaking to him. And it says that he turns to see the voice. Again, the way that's worded, I I think that's always interesting. But uh, obviously his desire is to see who is speaking. And again, I don't think it's out of curiosity. I think it's out of his, his devotion to the Lord. The whole reason he's there is because of his devotion, his service to the Lord, his faith. I mean, and John hasn't seen Jesus probably for some 60 years of his life at this point, I think he had a longing to see the Lord. And the Lord shows him himself here, but in a way that John had never seen. And, of course, his reaction demonstrates that. But I believe John knew. He anticipated when he is turning to see the voice. I believe he had anticipation of seeing the Lord Jesus, right? But notice what it is that the verse states, all right, verse 12 specifically, what does John first see as he turns to see this voice? He sees seven golden candlesticks. Now, I don't know about you, but at, in, in some years ago, I... I uh, had read something that got my attention along this line, and I really thought a lot about this. I mean, when you think about this, this picture that John describes of the Lord Jesus, right, and his brilliance, and, I mean, how bright he, his, just his face. I mean, but the, the interesting thing is John sees the details, all of them. His feet are like brass burning in a furnace, right, his, his white robe, Gold wrapped around his midsection. His eyes are as fire. Out of his mouth is going a a sword, a sharp sword, two-edged sword. All right? And his countenance, his face, John describes it as being brighter than the sun shining in his strength. Now, interestingly enough, Paul on the road to Damascus, he was struck down by a bright light from heaven. And he described it as shining brighter than the noonday sun, right? And uh, he says, who art thou, Lord? And the voice answered him, what? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. So in in that setting, Jesus obviously showed himself to Paul, but not in the, uh, if you want to say, the clarity and the descriptions that John sees. He just saw the brightness of him, and it blinded Paul, all right? And here, John is able to see the details. But with all that brilliance of the Lord Jesus, what I'm trying to get you to, to see here, picture is, I mean, just this, this radiance, right? But John, the first thing that, according to the Scripture, that he his attention goes to is seven golden candlesticks that are around the Lord Jesus. I mean, to me, again, that's, that's like, I, I, I can't imagine in a normal way of looking at things how you would ever even notice those candlesticks with the brilliance of the Lord Jesus there. My point being, I think it's very much on purpose that John sees these candlesticks. It's not his, it's not what his, physical eyes would have been, you know, drawn to, 
But the Lord demonstrates this in this way that the first thing that John records as seeing is the candlesticks. Then it says, and in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. And then he describes this brilliant description of the Lord Jesus. Again, I believe the point being is God is intending to make a point to John and to us, okay, to, to everybody who reads this through this vision. And that being that the Lord's churches are extremely important, extremely important to him. That John says, that's what, God, that's what I first saw. The, the churches, the seven candlesticks. Of course, we know from verse 20, those candlesticks are the seven churches, right? So you see their importance. And I, I'm not, I, for time's sake, I'm just going to move on here, but I hope that you, you catch the point I'm trying to make. There's no way this is a normal sighting, so to speak. I mean, if you, if you were to look at the noonday sun, so to speak, and there were like seven little objects of less brightness around it, how would you ever see those? I mean, it would have to be an unusual thing for you to see those. You would have to have some kind of filter, so to speak, to dim the sun in order to see those objects. And if Jesus' face shines brighter than the sun shining in its strength, there's no way John would have seen these in a human idea would have seen this. This is a miraculous thing that John is able to see these, which again, I believe demonstrates the point of the importance of the Lord's churches. John, the Lord, I should say, wants John to see his churches. And Jesus, of course, but in his relationship with these churches. All right? It's not he just sees Jesus or he just sees the churches. He sees the churches, he sees Jesus as being in the midst of his churches. All right? And that's, that's important. Je Jesus shows John his churches before allowing John to see himself. The churches are in a prominent position in this vision. All right? They're surrounding the Lord Jesus because he is described as being what? In the midst of these seven candlesticks in verse 13. All right, so you, you see this, right? This, their importance. And then notice, uh, and I guess I'm behind on the slides here, but then notice their institution. All right, now, again, these are alliterated, but so forgive me, but just to answer some questions here, and this is, again, going to be redundant with some of the things on Wednesday night in the ABCs, but what is the or a church? All right, what is the church in the New Testament? Well, basically... Again, the meaning of the word is an assembly, and people word that various ways, and I don't know why there's duplicate numbers here, but uh, people word that various ways, but basically the word that's translated church in the New Testament means assembly, all right? It's an assembly, it's, rever it's, re it, it's in the, the word group, if you want to say, with having to do with uh, calling out, all right? Uh, which would be the verb idea, but the, this particular word in that relation is the idea of those that have been called out, they're assembled together, right? It's the group of people, the assembly of people that have been called out. But the basic 
function and idea of the word is assembly. And that's what it meant in the first century when it was used here. All right? Um, it meant an assembly. And again, the way the New Testament uses the word, it never gives any other inclination that there's a different definition to be understood of the word than that. The only, when Jesus, in, in the verse that was in the lesson there in lesson C, all right, in Matthew 16, 18, uh, when Jesus first uses the word church, all right, he says, upon this rock I will build my church. The only specific thing he says about it right there that distinguishes it from any other church is that it's his, all right? It's his assembly, all right? And, and you can see in this vision that these churches have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, right? They're seen with Him. He's in the midst of them, all right? So a church is basically, it's an assembly. The Bible's usage of the word. I'm not going to go through all these instances here. They're in your handout there, and you can, uh, you can uh, look at those. But Jesus' usage of the word, do you realize that Jesus uses the word church more than any other person in the New Testament. Now, of course, a lot of that is in the book of Revelation here uh, and all these, uh, these letters and so on here, but um, he employs the word some 22 times and always uses it in the sense of being its, its normal, local, visible, uh, organized assembly or congregation. You could, you could substitute the word congregation for assembly. It's that idea. It's a people congregated, all right? Um, in the book of Acts, all right, same thing. The church is first noticed just as it was left in the gospel accounts, except with, of course, their, its great shepherd has ascended back to heaven. But the, uh, uh, the, the newly appointed, I'm not going to have time to stop and talk about this right now, but the newly appointed by Christ, I believe under shepherd of the church at that point, was Peter. Uh, John 21, I believe that there's a lot of that in that passage there. Um, but the apostles and a number of others, of course, are banded together, waiting on the promise of the Father. It says there in chapter 1, in chapter 2, after this promise is received, the church is defined as those who are in one location, they're saved, they're baptized, and those added together. All right? It's an assembly of people. And, of course, there's specific purpose of the assembly and so on. Uh, but... I believe that in all of the occurrences in the Bible, some 114, 115, depending on how you count that actually, uh, the Bible do never does redefine the word from anything than it's normal, understood at the time, first century use, that being an assembly. All right, The Bible merely presents a or the church as distinct from other assemblies of the day by describing them again as being Christ's church, their relationship with Him. Now, our understanding of the word church, of course, based on both its actual meaning and, and its usage through history and so on, but in the Bible's usage of the word, we can confidently say that the word church used in the New Testament should be understood as an actual assembly, the normal usage, right, that belongs to Christ. So what constitutes a church? As you look at the New Testament, again, what constitutes a church? And these are talked about in that lesson as well, but certain qualities that must be present for it to be a church. It has to have, obviously, a location because there's, there's a place. Now, that place can vary. And by the way, a church, let's just say that if 
Eastside Baptist Church. Today we're assembling here, and I forget exactly what the address is here on Highway uh, 321, but let's just say next week we met at, well, on the 20th, we'll just put it this way, the 20th of December, we're going to be meeting at another building in Marystown, right? But that doesn't change what the ch this church is and so on. This church could meet, could all go to Haiti. And I mean, you know, I'm just pulling that out of the hat. But anyway, so it's not the specific location that matters, but the assembly has to have a location. There's always location to an assembly, right? And there's always... Uh, that visibility, if you want to say. And it has to have organization. For a church to be a biblical church, obviously there's organization to it. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, there's an instance there, and I don't have time to look at this right now, there's an instance of a gathering that took place in Ephesus, in the theater at Ephesus, that was a response to, it was, it was idolaters being aroused by uh, the so many people had gotten saved. Their the idol makers' business was falling off because of this, and there's a a great gathering of people. But in that passage, there's a distinction between that mob and an assembly. All right, and I don't have time to get into that right now. But uh, the word assembly is used in that passage, which is the same word translated church. Um, but uh, so, they're, they're, in other words, it's not just any group of people that's together. That's the point. It, it's those that are gathered together with the right organization and the right constitution. All right, so what constitutes a church? Well, the members are the ones that constitute a church, and according to the Bible, biblical salvation, biblical immersion, and this assembly together. There's a purposeful coming together. And it's not just the coming together in services, but the, the, the coming together with commitment of a church. People are committed together as, a, as an assembly of the Lord Jesus, all right? And there's a lot more details we could get into with all that, but I'm, I'm wanting to move on here, all right? So second, first of all, you see the reality of the Lord's churches How did I... Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Notice also their relationship, the relationship of the Lord's churches. First of all, their relationship to Him, to Jesus. We already mentioned some that He calls the church His church, right? And there's a relationship involved in that. He's the possessor, He's the owner, He's the head, but they are His, all right? And so the, there is a relationship there, but in this in this vision that John sees in chapter 1, all right, what is the relationship that you see here? All right, Jesus is seen as how in relation to his churches there? He's seen as being in them, in among them, in the midst of. In fact, all those uh, phraseologies are used in this. Um, in fact, look at chapter 2, verse 1. The very first letter, Jesus describes himself here as being that way. He says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now notice, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. There, he's demonstrating himself as walking among his churches. And, and there's a number of things about that that are important, all right? 
he's in his churches, he's among his churches, all right? But also, it's not relegated to just one church. It's all of those churches. He has that same relationship too. And he's seen as being, you know, just walking among them, in the midst of them, all right? In the midst of any one church, but in the midst of all of them together as well, all right? So he's that one, and then he's the one who has all authority with his churches. And there's a lot of scriptures that we could look at, but again, for time's sake, we're not going to be able to look at all of those this morning. On the handout that you have, there is, <coughs> excuse me, there is, uh, these, these are recorded there on the handout. All right, he's seen as being the, the foundation of the church, his, the head of the church, the builder, the founder, all right, and, and probably other descriptions could be listed as well. But then you see also his great love for his churches, all right. He's there because he's, he wants to be with them. He loves them. In fact, there's an interesting verse, Ephesians 5.25, that says it's talking about Christ, and it's actually... In that passage, talking about a husband and wife, but it compares that relationship to Christ and the church. Now there, the idea of the church, you might say, what church is that talking about? Well, it's any and all of his churches, any of them together. Now, in that exact context, you would say, well, it's specifically applying to the Ephesian church. That's who it's being written to at that point. But the same truth is true for any of Christ's churches. All right? But he has great love for his church. It says there that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, some people might say, well, I thought he loved everybody. Well, he does love everybody. John 3.16 says God so loved the world. All right, But in that verse, it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. A specific love there. All right, Again, we could talk a lot about any of these, but... Notice their relationship to him. We see this, all right? And then, I guess, uh, fourthly here, not only is great love number three, but also he is with his churches. In Matthew 28, he said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, all right? Um, but he's with his churches as well. And, and part of the emphasis, particularly in that context, is he's there for support, and authority, and so on. It's not just, you know, some cordial kind of statement there. But then notice the relationship to each other. I think this is important also to uh, talk about, not only their, the church's relationship to Christ, but their relationship to each other. Because in the world in which we live, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this as well. All right? But how do you see, just, just before we even click any more slides here, how do you see these churches? It says there's seven churches around Christ. He's in their midst. Right? Which church of those is most important? Which church of those is least important? Which one does Christ love more? I mean, again, the point being, the way this is portrayed, it shows every one of these churches have an equal relationship with Christ, and they all have the same relationship to each other. In other words, they're all individual churches, they're all autonomous, all right, but they're also there together. And I believe that's a picture of what the Lord intends for this, for this age. 
No one single church can completely do God's plan in this world. Every church should be doing all that it can, and not any two churches are necessarily equal, okay? As far as, and when I say that, even from the human standpoint, there's a variety of, of abilities and, and makeup and, and various things, but the Lord requires faithfulness from each, right? And so at the end of the day, so to speak, if a church that has a million people, a church that has a hundred people, Church that has 10 people, whatever. I mean, who is it that's most important? They're all equally important to the Lord. That's, that's something that needs to be understood in our minds. And is often not looked at that way in, if you want to say, in the visible aspect of Christianity and churches in, 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 the, in our country, at least. I can't say necessarily all the world, but in our country today. I mean, there's churches that are looked at as being... Great churches, you know what I'm saying? I mean, any church that's faithful to the Word of God and faithful to the Lord is a great church and is important to the Lord, all right? So you see that autonomy, that attitude of each and so on, and they're, they're seen as individual churches, but they're depicted as equal and cooperative, and they are all together are the circle around the Lord Jesus. And then... Notice also the relevance of the Lord's churches, all right? The church is the Lord's chosen New Testament institution. The Lord's the one that started it, that gave His life for it. He's the one that provides for it. He's the one that promised to be with it. He's the one that's given His word to it. Now somebody say, He gave His word to the churches? Well, I think that's fair to say. Now, you know... Somebody turn to 1 Timothy 3, if you would, and read verse 15. All right, Brother John? 1 Timothy 3, 15. Notice what this word said. And, and keep in mind that in this general context that this verse occurs, it's in, it's in a passage that describes qualifications of bishops and deacons. All right, so it's in, it's in a... Think about the context, and then, if you would, go ahead and read the verse, John. 3.15? Yes. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. All right, notice how the description is given there. All right, it's called the, the house of God, the church of God, and it says, the pillar and ground of the truth. All right, that's an interesting description. But what is a pillar? Think about that. What, what's a pillar? All right. I mean, for purposes of looking at it now, the light probably won't shine there, but there's six by six posts out here, but those are pillars. I mean, a column, a post, all right? And what does that do? What's the purpose of a post? Now, granted, there were instances, in fact, in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament where people would set up a pillar for a, a different thing. It was more of a memorial thing or uh, something to themselves or something of that sort, but in the typical sense, because this has two descriptions, I think it's very clear this is what it's talking about. A pillar or a post does what? What does it do? Gives support to something. It is holding something up. And by the way, if you've built anything, you know that that's important, all right? 
But also then it says the pillar and ground. All right, now the ground, the word there is the idea, literally you could call it the stay or it's the foundation under the post. All right, so in other words, it's talking about something of support, not a memorial. All right, the church, by the way, is not a memorial. It's, it, it observes some memorials, the Lord's Supper's on, and baptism even, but, but it's described as being what the Lord has entrusted His truth to. Holding up His truth. Supporting His truth in this world. Now notice, it doesn't say the church determines what is truth and what's not truth. That's already been determined for us. God's done that and He's given us truth. But the church's responsibility is to hold up that truth. That means the church has to be faithful to it and so on. But, but, that's, but in that context, again, it's talking about churches and, and, that have pastors, deacons, and so on. And, and it says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's a very, very important statement in the New Testament. There's nothing else. My point being, there's nothing else you're going to find in the New Testament that has that kind of statement about it, who the Lord has entrusted His truth to. Uh, I think you, both of you have mentioned it sometime recently. All right, Romans chapter 3 talks about Israel being, that they have a benefit in the world because unto them was entrusted the oracles of God, which is basically referring to the Old Testament there. All right, so think about that. God has entrusted the Old Testament. He gave that to Israel. And they're the ones that were the ones that were to hold up that for many years. God gave the New Testament and His churches are to hold that up. Now, we hold to the Old Testament as well, but the New Testament, I mean, the church isn't found in the Old Testament, okay? So it's, it's not about us. It's there for our learning and example and admonition, but the New Testament is what deals with the church, and that has been entrusted to the Lord's churches. And uh, by the way, let me just throw this in here too. This has to do with the Bible, all right? Uh, and, and again, I don't, I don't mean this in any kind of derogatory way. I hope you understand that. But the Catholic Church did not give us the Bible. All right? The, the canon, as they call of Scripture was settled by the Lord's churches way before, you know, the Council of Nicaea that is supposed to have been looked at as, you know, formulating the, the Old and New Testaments and so on. No. You can tell from, uh, in 2 Peter, for instance, Peter refers to Paul's epistles. And so, I mean, the Lord's churches knew what was Scripture, when it was given, and it was their responsibility to hold and to hold up that truth. And they knew what was not Scripture as well, by the way. I mean, there were other things that the apostles wrote. Paul mentions about a letter he wrote to the Laodiceans in the book of Colossians. But we don't have that in the Bible, all right? Because it wasn't Scripture. But other of Paul's writings were Scripture. But he wrote other things. I mean, there were at least four known letters from Paul to the church at Corinth. But only two of them are in the Bible. Only two of them are Scripture. And so, I mean, again, 
Point being, they knew what was Scripture because God entrusted them and God equipped them to know what was Scripture and to be able to hold to it and to hold it up. Right? So i gotta, I got to move on here. Um, so not only are, is the church the Lord's chosen institution, the, Lord is, the church is the Lord's only institution. It's the only thing you find in the New Testament. And i got to move on. All right? The responsibility of the Lord's churches. This ought to be kind of obvious, but think of it again. We're trying to look at all this in light of this vision in chapter 1. Okay? And I can't keep going back every time and reading the whole vision. But again, look at how the, the relationship and everything here, the, 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 the churches were around the Lord Jesus. Now, they're called in that. In fact, the physical image that John sees is candlesticks. He doesn't see churches, you know. He sees candlesticks, and then later the Lord tells him those candlesticks are the churches. Okay? But think about that. He sees candlesticks. Does the Lord Jesus need any help in His shining? According to that vision, I mean, He obviously outshines the... There's no way that you can't say that He doesn't shine far brighter than those candlesticks ever could. Right? Candlesticks, and again, in the first century uh, setting, candlesticks would have been a normal household piece of furniture. A candlestick, now that's kind of, I mean, that's a, that's a, uh, a 1611 kind of word, okay? Because really it's not so much something with a candle like wax and a wick, but in that first century, this would have been, think of it as a lampstand instead of a candlestick, all right? But a lampstand. It was a piece of furniture, but its purpose was to put a oil-burning lamp on and it held it up in the house. All right? You remember the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 5? He's talking to his disciples, and he says, Ye are the light of the world. And then he says, you know, if somebody lights a candle, again, it's a lamp, all right? Not a candle with wax and wick, but that came much later in history. But uh, an oil-filled lamp with a wick that would burn, all right, and give light. He says, you don't do that and put it under a bushel, right? And then we have that song, right? This little light of mine. But what do you do with it, according to what Jesus said? You put it, you light it and put it on a candlestick, all right? You put that lamp on a lampstand because its purpose is, he says, to give light unto all that are in the house. Then he says, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I'll get back to that verse maybe in a second if I have time here. But what I'm getting at is the responsibility of the Lord's churches basically is to illuminate Jesus. He doesn't need, I mean, he can, he can shine to the world, but the point being, this is his plan. That's what he's chosen. That's why it's our, their responsibility. All right, not because he needs it, but because he has chosen it this way. This is God's plan. I mean, again, you could think about this in so many ways. Could God have had, had done his plan in this world in different ways? I mean, does he really need us? Well, he needs us in the sense that we need to do what he said, but he could have done all kinds of things. But this is what he's chosen to do. All right? And so... 
to be light bearers, to illuminate Jesus, to be light bearers, in other words, to shine on him. And the emphasis that I have in that is, okay, everything is about him. It's not about us. It's about him. But to be light bearers is, the, uh, the other side of that is, we live in a dark world and the Lord's given us the responsibility of being the light in this world. Now, interestingly enough here, and I, I got I to gotta stop. Churches in the New Testament, this is a prime example. If it's the only example, it's a prime example, all right? Churches are, are seen as the lampstands. Individual believers, because I believe in Matthew 5, he's not talking to his disciples there as a church, but as individuals. He says, ye are the light of the world. Ye is plural, all of you are the light of the world. But then he says that a lamp or a light should be put on a lampstand, a light. Christians need to be in churches. They need to be on a lampstand so that the purpose that God has can be fulfilled. I mean, there, there's a lot of things about that, and, and just have to leave that at that right now. And, but let me back up to that last statement there. But we all need to understand what the Bible teaches about the New Testament church and our responsibility to it. It is God's plan for this day in which we live. Plain and simple. And uh, it's His plan, and so we should be on board with it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, of course. And I pray that you'd help us individually, help us corporately to be faithful to you, to shine for you in this dark world, but yet to illuminate you, to point everything towards you, and of course, not to ourselves. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.